1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend from Derry, Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hi, Seb. Hi, everybody. Yes. Hello, everyone. We are uh, winding down the year. We're recording this uh, late December 2021. Uh, Before we get into the discussion about the episode, Glenn, why don't you orient everybody to the uh, ways that they can contact
2: us and access the podcast. Of course. So as usual, our Twitter handle is at change talking on Facebook. It's talking to change on Instagram. It's talking to change podcast and for emails in relation to questions or queries about the podcast or information that you're seeking in relation to trainings that we offer. It's podcast at GlenHines.com. Right.
1: So we're, uh, we're having a uh, a bit of a different style of uh, episode today, as as our listeners know. Most of the time, we're speaking with uh, with clinicians, or at least having a, a conversation that's more clinically oriented. And what we were thinking about doing is uh, periodically having a researcher join us. Now, it's not it wouldn't be the first time we've had a couple of prolific researchers previously, but um, we want to have uh, uh, sort of intentionally bringing on some researchers here and there to talk about their work in the lab and how it influences or um, guides our work as clinicians uh, in the various settings that we work in. So we uh, we had April Carcone join us, who is a researcher at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan in the U.S. And so just to give a, a brief context to, to her and offer a resource perhaps for many of our listeners. so. April and I met for the first time back in, I think it was 2011 or 13, somewhere in early, early 2010s. And um, we met at a conference called the International Conference for Motivational Interviewing, also known as the ICMI. So our listeners will be familiar with the acronym of the MINTS, which is the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. That's a group that Glenn and I are part of and many of our, our guests have been a part of, that's a, an organization that you can apply for membership. And, and it's a quite rigorous a clinical examples and, and go through an application process. But ICMI is open to anyone interested in attending a conference on motivational interviewing. It is intended to be more research oriented. So that's something for people to know. But uh, we just wanted to offer that bit of information for people interested in joining the group more professionally and we'll provide a link on the uh, episode uh, notes page so yeah so that's a bit of background on, on April the, the this particular uh, episode that we're we're uh, sharing today and then this this organization called Ikmi. but uh, Glenn as we've been doing lately share with us some uh, some thoughts or some important uh, take-home points I guess that you've uh, that you took from our conversation with April that we just had
2: yeah, thanks, Abel. I suppose the first one is, that, as you mentioned yourself, just about why we're speaking to a researcher in particular. Is just the, the the importance of of research itself and how it informs how our understanding of where we are, and very importantly, where it is we may get to in the future. And Abel does a wonderful job in helping us begin to explore the discoveries that she and her team are making in relation to the language that is used in motivational and and the populations that it can be used with and the variations the slight variations that may need to be taken into account when we're practicing with different people so that's that's really interesting the other thing building on the 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 conversation we previously had with Jordan in episode 27 is looking at the impact of AI artificial intelligence on healthcare and and practice and the interesting ways that researchers are now using AI to shorten their information, how they mine information from uh, the details that they have in the conversations, and then finally, it's just that it, it's very clear just how passionate, how how very passionate April is in relation to what it is she does and and why she does it. So, um, a very fascinating uh, episode, and I hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah, agreed on, on all counts. Um,
1: there are there are some really uh, there's some really wonderful work that that really is looking at the future of MI and um, e-health, telehealth, AI, all of these uh, places that the, the field is going. And so that's all exciting. A couple of things on my end, uh, kind of building off of what you already said, Glenn, is it, it's always interesting to me when I listen to researchers talk about their work and how methodical and precise they are, or, or many of them are anyway. And, and I think April describes it in this way. Very careful, careful about what conclusions to draw, what conclusions not to draw and appreciating every piece of the puzzle and what it is that we do as clinicians behind closed doors and why we might use particular skills, whether it's uh, an affirmation or to provide autonomy support and why we might choose to not do certain things like explore in at length another person's sustained talk. Uh, these are all things that, as MI practitioners, we're careful to do or not to do, and and we that comes from people like April who is doing all the all the good research that requires a great deal of time and energy to do. So that was one thing for me. The other is uh, she she really highlights a finding in one of her past research endeavors on the importance of autonomy support working with young people. And uh, so she goes into some detail talking about that particular study and it's all really interesting stuff. So hopefully you all enjoy it and hopefully you will look forward to some of our future episodes talking with some of the great researchers out there across the world. Without further ado, let's listen to April. Hello, April. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So, April, uh, tell us uh, tell us, and tell our audience a bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what we've come to, to call your early MI story.
0: Sure, sure. So, I currently am a, an academic researcher at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, in the United States. Uh, I'm in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health Sciences uh, in the Division of Behavioral Science. And so primarily, my job is to do research, and a good chunk of that research has been in the field of motivational interviewing. I got introduced to motivational interviewing by Sylvie Narr, who I think many of your listeners might know. So she has uh, written a book on motivational interviewing with adolescents and young adults, as well as been very active in the Mint for many, many years. And I came into this world because we had a grant or really Sylvie had a grant and she brought me into it. And part of that grant was adapting motivational interviewing for home-based weight management treatment for overweight and or obese African-American adolescents living in and around the city of Detroit. And so there was a real interest to try to understand if the communication that happens in the MI context with those youth was effective or, or if there were different types of how to make it as effective as possible in helping these youth achieve some of their weight loss goals. So um, that was the start of it. And since that time... Uh, I've really taken off with this research and have been involved in a number of projects to look at the sequence of communication and motivational interviewing to really understand how communication works and whether there are different communication strategies that different providers use in different contexts that work better than others. So that's kind of
2: yeah, fa- yeah fascinating introduction and, and and quite a quite a specific target group that you that you began this journey on working with you know home-based African American youth who, who had a diagnosis or were presenting with being overweight or obese and then just being curious about that does motivation Interviewing or does the mechanics of certain mechanics of motivation view work well with them or do we need to do it slightly differently with this population? And I guess that's that's a really interesting question for for many people to consider. Well, it's motivation to view or any other approaches. Do we need to speak differently to different populations while using the same approach? And I guess that's part of what we're going to be exploring today. And, and what I mean in in broad terms, then April, what did you discover, and what have you, and how has that led on to more research in your field?
0: Yeah, so. What we learned from that first initial study was that there were, if I, let me take a step back, I suppose, and just talk about the broader research in this area. So back in, I believe it was around 2006, uh, Terry Moyers and Tim Martin had embarked on this initial discovery of trying to understand what were, really they were looking at, do am I consistent Communication behaviors. So those behaviors that are emphasized in MI training um, as being patient-centered and supportive are those. Is there an empirical link to the elicitation of change talk in the patient? Right. So asking open-ended questions, using reflections, you know, using affirmations. Do those things really cause the patient to make expressions of change talk? Because we know from other research that change talk is linked to behavior change, right? So the more we can get the patients talking about the underlying reasons, desires, their ability, their commitment to making change in their lives, the more likely those patients are going to be enacting those changes in their life outside of the clinical setting, right? So outside of the therapy room or outside of the exam room. And so we were building on that initial research because much of it had been done with adults who were in substance use treatment or alcohol use treatment. And we really wanted to understand for our African-American youth who are struggling with a health problem, is this, are, are the same communication strategies as effective. And we wanted to be able to really teach our community health workers. So I guess that's an important part that I I didn't mention initially. We were working with community health workers. So these are paraprofessionals, so people who may have a bachelor's degree, but they're not master's level clinicians that you might see when you come into the hospital or into the clinic for formal treatment. We wanted to really be able to help them hone in on some of the communication strategies that would be most effective with these youth. And what we learned is that if we wanted to encourage adolescents to make change talk statements, there were three behaviors or three communication strategies that counselors used, asking open-ended questions that were phrased in such a way that the patient's expected response would be change talk reflections of change talk that the counselor may have been hearing, and then statements that emphasize the patient's decision-making autonomy. These were the three behaviors that were directly linked to change talk statements. And the same behaviors were also linked to uh, commitment language statements, which as we all know, are a little bit more closely linked to actually enacting behavior change, right? So these are the things you're going to do or you intend to do when you leave the office that day. So that was sort of what we learned from that initial um, investigation with these youth.
1: So still stepping back if we can. And one of the, one of our motives of, uh, for inviting you, April, <laughs> is it's uh, maybe a thread that we'll continue with a bit in the coming year is to have researchers uh, on the podcast. And, and as many people know who are listening, the podcast is, is quite practical or the intention of it is to be quite practical and focus on clinicians. Sure. But the work that we do in motivational interviewing isn't just a set of skills or strategies that feel just feel good or make kind of intuitive sense. But maybe you could argue both of those are true also. But the reason why we emphasize things like reflective listening and open questions and commitment language and, you know, evoking change talk is, is the sort of the, the foundational research that led to the growth of MI really identified these skills that led to positive outcomes uh, in, as you said, in, in a certain population, adult Uh, adults seeking treatment for uh, substance use problems. And uh, so just, I think it's really interesting and important to highlight, even if you are a clinician out there, you're never going to write or perhaps even read a paper in your, in your life to like appreciate what goes into the skills that end up getting taught in a training. And so what you did here from what we're we're gathering is you took these findings from one population and then you asked this very curious question, like, okay, so an adult with a substance use issue, different person, different experiences, different background than an African-American youth living in a large metro area in the U S struggling with a health problem. And, uh, so just, I guess really just wanting to highlight that, that process of, of, Exploring and kind of questioning that, and April, could you maybe speak a bit to even just the process of thinking about the questions that you ask yourself and you explore with your team, and then sort of thinking about how that that clinician out there in the world working with those youth, those community workers, or whoever they are, like what, what's that process like? What, what's that about for you?
0: So, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, I mean, so. Partly what we're trying to do in the research world is build empirical evidence for interventions, right? So there's a whole wealth of evidence around motivational interviewing at this point that it works if there's a high degree of fidelity, meaning counselors are, you know, using those MI consistent communication strategies in their interactions with patients end up changing their behavior and one of the cool things I think about MI is unlike other interventions the change seems to stick right that has to do I think with the intrinsic motivation that is being elicited as opposed to other types of interventions that may rely on extrinsic motivation or rely on that relationship that the patient has with a counselor. And when that relationship goes away, some of that support for behavior change goes away with it. And so I guess if I'm following your question correctly, you know, one of the things that we were looking at is at the time that this research started, started like Terry and, and Tim Martin, uh, one of her collaborators on that early MI work. They had sort of said, building on the clinical wisdom that came out of MI research before that, that MI works to evoke change. Then they were sort of saying, okay, so what is it about MI that works? And is it these these communication strategies, these techniques that uh, counselors are using to try to elicit motivation, right? Intrinsic motivation, get people to articulate the reasons why they want to change. And so we... Could have done something similar, but you know, in the research world, we always want to kind of build the research base. So the the next step in that process is really sort of teasing apart what are the MI consistent strategies? What are MI inconsistent strategies? And what is just other conversation, right? Pleasantries and that sort of things. And can we draw an empirical link between The specific things that people do rather than like kind of a group of things that people do. And then that opens up the question of okay, so if, you know, open ended questions, eliciting autonomy, reflections of change talk work with adolescents, the next thing we did is we looked to see. Are the same strategies effective with their parents, the caregivers, because these are family-based interventions when you're working with kids, right? So you're having a meeting with both the kid and the parent present, maybe some of the time, and maybe individually. And so how can we help the counselors, these, these community health workers who are going out into the home, be as effective as they can in those brief encounters right so even though this is considered an intensive intervention because we're going out into the homes we were meeting with them weekly for over a period of about six months that's still in the grand scheme of things the grand screen the grand scheme of somebody's life that's a relatively brief interaction right and so we really wanted to kind of make it as powerful if, as we could, if that makes sense. Did I answer the question? I feel like maybe I rambled.
2: Yeah, I guess what I was doing and as you were talking there, I was just imagining the group of researchers sitting around and getting excited. I imagine then about, you know, what's what's the information that we have and, and how can we interrogate it? even more in in a way that will give us more insight. And the whole purpose of, of this is so that when we send practitioners out into the field, that they have been given a steer as to what we know works. And we can equip them with that knowledge and those skills and then invite them to make that their own and then that's that's the relational aspect of their helping, but they will understand. Look, asking these types of open-ended questions, using these types of reflections, and using this these autonomy statements generally will enhance the outcomes when you're working with this group. And you know, it, it it was almost like as I was listening to you, just the notion of that you had been given some music. And you were just breaking it down into its different sections and going, "How can we? How does this music work for? Does it work in this population?" And then the question was that you then began to explore. You described was working with the parents, and I'm just wondering, did you notice that the that the the same music was being played, but at a slightly different rhythm, or what was different Mm. about the interventions with the young people and their parents, or was it just just do this and it works with both populations?
0: yeah so what we found when we looked at the conversations between the community health workers and the caregivers were, were that the same kinds of communication strategies is what we think of them. I'm not sure if that's the language that you would use, but this, you know so but but in a different order, if that makes sense. So for kids, the open ended questions and the emphasizing autonomy were sort of the top 2. And reflections were were strong as well, but maybe not as strong as those two. For the caregivers, what we found is that reflections of change talk and then open ended questions. So getting so demonstrating perhaps active listening through communication or excuse me through reflections, and then really having a conversation with the caregiver by eliciting some of those motivational statements from them were more powerful in eliciting change talk in caregivers. Emphasizing autonomy was still an important uh, an important tool, if you will, to kind of help parents build motivation towards changing their behavior, which in this case would be supporting all the things that their child might need to uh, enact the weight loss intervention recommendations so lifestyle modifications but yeah they were they were in a little bit of different order and we actually were a little bit surprised by that because we kind of thought initially going into it that maybe the caregivers would respond a little differently because they're adults right and maybe And and to an extent that they did, but the, the, the key behaviors were similar. So what that really caused us to kind of reflect on is this idea that when you are working with people to change their behavior, when it comes to asking those questions, it really matters like what you're asking about, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the my understanding of uh, motivational interviewing is, you know, the question, asking questions is um, trying to think about how I phrase this. So asking questions is always an am I consistent behavior? And maybe in the past there has been less emphasis on like, is this a question that is phrased to elicit change talk? Is this a question that is phrased to explore stain talk or motivation, you know, reasons that you might not want to change your behavior. Is this a question that asks about barriers? So those questions have maybe been all considered to be, am I consistent? And and I think what we found is that if you really want to boil it down to moving the patient forward, moving your client forward, it really matters how what you ask about. So if you ask them about what are the reasons what are the 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 desire the reasons the ability to change you're going to really hear that coming back at you and and we know that the more we can get them to talk about those things the more likely they are to enact the changes that they are in treatment for
1: yeah yeah no i i think i think what what i'm hearing from this is you know, again, thinking of somebody who's uh, learning about MI or a clinician out there who's who's sort of getting a sense of how to use these skills, that that a reasonable starting point might be what's an open question and what's a closed question? What's a reflection? What's an affirmation? What's a summary? You know, these the ors as, as we, uh, the core skills, we often talk about it. And it pro- perhaps makes sense to just make sure that I mean, people know what questions are, but make sure they understand the distinction there. Make sure they understand the mechanics of a reflection and how the voice tone works, and you know what an affirmation is. You know, relative to what a praise statement might be. There, there are these sorts of things, right? But, but what your, what you and your team's work has contributed to, I guess, is to really emphasize the importance not just of any old open question, right? Like I could say. So what did you do today? That's an open question. Sure. It's not necessarily about any direction, It's but it is an open question. That emphasizing specific kinds of open questions that are meant, strategically meant to elicit change talk, and then reflections also that are strategically meant to invite the person to say more about change that they're gonna make. Because there's you can reflect anything that a, a client might say, and some, sometimes a reflection might not necessarily be an invitation to go anywhere. And then others can be specifically crafted in the direction of change. So, and so again, this is one of those things that a lot of MI practitioners might take for granted, or they may not understand like, huh, like wh- why, why do we spend so much time trying to learn about reflections and the work that, that you're doing, the work that Terry Moyers did, Bill Miller, of course, I mean all of these clinicians out there, or I'm sorry, all these researchers out there are contributing to the field and guiding our everyday practice. And, and actually, so if, I guess that's kind of what I'm hearing from there. But I wonder if you could also like, like offer some specific examples, right? So like what would be an open question in the, in the um, context of weight treatment for weight management Right. Like what would be a, an open question or two that would work or or imagine a reflection or two in the direction of change? And, and also those autonomy supportive statements. Right. Like what does that sound like for the for the listeners of, of our episode today?
0: Yeah. So when the autonomy sort supportive statements came up a lot, of course, when you're working with children, the other thing that comes to my mind and is tying that into adolescence development, but I'll answer your first question first. So, you know, when it comes to emphasizing autonomy, we would hear the, the community health workers saying things like, you know, no one can make you do this. It's it's all up to you. You know, if you don't want to eat broccoli for dinner, and I'm just making a silly example, but you know, you don't have to do that. This This is up to you. It's up to you to kind of decide how This is going to work. You know, if you would like to, you know, exercise, you get to choose how that happens, when that happens. And if it happens, you know, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're just here to kind of help you along that path. So those are some kinds of like just honoring and respecting and making it very clear to adolescents that, you know, this is their journey and this is their life and we're here to help but we're not here to tell them what to do Uh, and and maybe that's a little different from what they have experienced in other areas of their life right in school the teachers tell you what to do you go to the doctor and they tell you what to do and 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 we're not here to tell you what to do we're just here to help you along the way when it comes to like the open-ended questions you know asking them things like why do you want to you know, lose weight, or why might you want to lose weight? And we would hear things from adolescents that you might expect, you know, like we're we're talking about girls who are getting ready to go to prom, and they want to wear a dress, and they want to look good in that dress, you know, those sorts of things. You know, how do you think your life might be different if you were to lose 10 pounds or 10% or whatever the goal is that they had set with their, their counselor to try to help them envision what, you know, how life might be different uh, somewhere along the line or somewhere down the road. Um, when it comes to commitment language, it's asking them things like, so what are you ready to do today or tomorrow or next week? Like we, we listed a lot of things that maybe you want to do and what are some of the steps that we could take to get you there? Like, Do you want to try that broccoli (laughs) or do you want to do, you know, what what else? What are are you willing to try today or tomorrow to kind of move us along that path? So those are a few examples that come to my mind. And then just coming back to the point about um, emphasizing autonomy. I mean, I think one of the things, and this is really a thread that kind of goes through work that my own work that has come since that, I think that that communication strategy, that Technique, if you will, of just sort of really being very overt and upfront with adolescents about this is your journey, this is your life, this is your choice, really resonates with them because of where they're at in terms of their development. If you have a teenager, know a teenager, or can remember when you were a teenager, you know, that is a period of time when you're really just trying to figure out who you are and what you want to be. And you're trying to be an adult, right? You're trying on adult behaviors and adult experiences. And so by providing youth with an opportunity to take on that responsibility with support, right? So we have our caregiver there uh, in the weight loss um, intervention, and we have our community health worker there to support that, I think really resonates with youth in particular. And I think it resonates with African-American families more broadly because of the history, at least in the U.S., of mistrust and mistreatment that many, you know, marginalized populations have experienced. So it maybe feels like a different experience that they can really connect with.
2: Mm. If sounds, mm. yeah, it just makes me reminds me of the conversation we had with Bill Neto, who talked about evolutionary psychology and the idea of social dominance and the importance of you know, not just in children, but that the reason why we very often get resistance in our helpings, uh conversations is because it feels like it's a top down intervention where the practitioner, with good intention, is saying, do "You know what you should do, or you should try this." And what's getting triggered is that middle brain going, you know what, if, if, if you're telling me what to do, you've got higher, higher social hierarchy. You're higher in the social hierarchy than me and I can't afford that. So I'm going to fight back. And it's, it's lovely the way you describe that, recognizing that for, for teenagers, adolescents, there is this, there's this transitionary period taking place. And here's, here are these, I'm going to use the word wise adults who recognize this transition and are going, you know what? If if you wanted to do this, what would you do? If you if you were wearing adult clothes, what decisions would you make? And you're just that gentle invitation to explore. You know, if if you were a fully grown human being and you, you know you could make your own decisions, what would they be? And you're just mm-hmm. that creating that space where they're not having to argue for them for the right to make up their own mind. And because they're not having to argue about that, then. That that energy can be used to think for themselves. Well, what is it? You know, what is it I do want for myself, or I, who do I want to become? You know, it's such a powerful question to ask anybody. Who do you want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us have been asked, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" But how often are we genuinely exploring, "Who do you want to be?" And I, I, I guess it brings me back to. What what else can you know? That you mentioned I mentioned earlier on. I asked you earlier on about the difference between the the young people and the adults, and you were saying, you know, what there were some subtle differences, and it, mm-hmm. and I wondered, was it about that developmental stage? Young people, younger people need are still trying to find their feet, and and they're they're requiring a lot more autonomy support. But does it go broader than that then? Is it that given the fact that you're working with, in this this example, African-American population, does it change across other populations or is it that you've noticed if you do these things, it generally works across most populations? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, The other population that I've done some of this more intensive looking at the process of communication is with um, young adults in the HIV clinic. So um, these would be individuals who have been diagnosed with HIV and they are coming into clinic for their medication and health monitoring. Right. And so one of the, uh, in, in a study that we did not too long ago, We were working on developing a tailored, so this is Sylvie Nars' tailored motivational interviewing work, if you're familiar at all with some of what she's been doing in that space. But part of the role that I had on that project was helping to examine the communication that the various healthcare providers were having with the patients when they would come into the clinic. And so these are young adults, mostly they're, they can be older adolescents, but they're more like what we would call emerging adults in the work that I do. So these are going to be, you know, maybe some 17 year olds, but, you know, 18, 19 into your early twenties coming into the clinic. And so we found some similar patterns there but some differences as well. So still, you know, asking questions that were phrased in a way that you would expect to hear change talk back. But in that setting, it it was less important if it was an open-ended question or if it was a closed-ended question, interestingly enough. And reflections were also very strongly related to the elicitation or, you know, having the patient make a change talk statement. Some of the other things that we know about uh, motivational interviewing, so making affirmation, emphasizing autonomy, presenting information in a patient-centered way. So this would be like using ask, tell, ask or phrasing it in a way that the patient can sort of say, ah, I don't know if that's for me. Those strategies were also likely to elicit a change talk statement among the patient, but at a a lower rate than the questions and the reflections. And one of the things that we were reflecting on, because we were actually kind of puzzled, we kind of thought maybe we would just be seeing the same thing that we had seen in our adolescents engaged in weight loss treatment, because they're still young, they're largely African-American youth that are coming into this clinic, right? So we're here in Detroit. That's mostly uh, who we serve, but it, it was a little different. And so we reflected on that a little bit. And one of the things that we sort of concluded was, um, I think it's partly because of the way that healthcare providers are trained, right? So they're trained to ask a lot of questions. And they're not trained to ask open-ended questions. They're trained, to, you know, is it this? Is it that? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. They're they're really closed-ended questions that they're trained. So one of the things that we concluded from that work was that if we could encourage healthcare providers to maybe be less focused on, is this closed or is this open? Because it's really hard to change once you've been trained to kind of ask questions that way, but really to focus on the content of the question, like, what are you trying to get the patient to talk about here and really focus on change talk rather than, you know, okay, I want you to take all these closed questions that you're going to ask and open them up, which can be a little bit more challenging, particularly in a busy clinical space, right? They're seeing many, many, many patients in a day and it's, it's hard to make those conversational, those to to change the way that you're speaking, but maybe if we can get them to just focus on what do you want? What do you need? You know, why is this important that that can help help them move the patient along or at least the evidence suggested that helped move the patient along.
1: Yeah. It's, I hear that as, as like this still ongoing curious process, also a flexible mindset with this it's it's not it's not dogma of you know it must be open question no matter what it's it's seeing what you've learned from doing the research and and interpreting the data and then trying to like fit that into the real world of a healthcare provider of a doctor or a nurse or somebody who is trained heavily in answering and asking questions and then sort of the conclusion or the next step from that is it's not to change the world of medicine or to change how medical schools train their their student doctors entirely but it's to it's to suggest that you can ask questions in more efficient ways or more effective ways regardless of whether they're open or closed it's sort of like you know choosing your battles well maybe that's not really a battle that's worth having having but being really strategic in the question that you're asking now you're going to get you're going to be efficient and produce outcomes that you're hoping for anyway in, in your world. Just thinking about this part of your work here which is it's it's sort of very much rooted in the past of MI and sort of the foundational ideas that Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, you know, pondered and wrote about in the in the early days and the early editions of the MI books and the, the first articles and, and clinical trials that they ran. Another part of your work is very much about the future and where we might be going with MI. And so wondering if you might, you know, pivot or transition a Mm -hmm. bit to talking about some of the work that you're doing right now and kind of where that's heading.
0: Yeah, great. I was hoping that we would be able to talk a little bit about this because it's pretty exciting, I think. It's exciting for the research world, but I think it's exciting for the whole world at this point, the the thought of, uh, you know, how we can utilize some of this exciting artificial intelligence technology that is being developed in this kind of work. You know, at first glance, it might seem like, I don't know what that has to do with what we're doing, but... I think there is a lot of exciting opportunities here. So, like I, like when you asked me about what other populations or, you know, what have you learned from other populations? Part of the reason why there hasn't, I haven't done as much of this work as I might have enjoyed is because it's so time consuming, right? So we have to, well, first we have to get our hands on these encounters, which is probably the easy part. But then to train human coders in motivational interviewing, at least in the language of motivational interviewing, and what do these different, you know, techniques or behaviors that we've been talking about mean? What do they look like? What do they sound like in these different contexts? And then to have them actually go through the transcribed, clinical encounters and, and basically label them, right? So we're, we're looking at each thing a person says and saying, if it's a patient, is that change talk? Is that commitment language? Is that something else? If it's a counselor or, or a, a provider, another type of a provider, we're asking ourselves, They've got a much longer list, right? Is it emphasizing autonomy? Is it asking questions? Is it this thing we called structure session, which is kind of like telling people what the agenda is or where the the interve- uh, action is going? And so that can take a, a lot of time. And then the coding process can take a lot of time as well. And so one of the things that um, we've been doing is trying to understand if machine learning algorithms, machine learning modeling, could be an approach to really accelerate this type of work. And we've had some success in doing that. So we started off just looking at the patient language. And can we, we, we use a, a, without getting into too many technical details, but there's different types of these machine learning algorithms. And one type that we're using is called supervised learning, which essentially means, you provide the computer with examples of what you're looking for. So this is what change talk statements look like. This is what commitment language statements look like. This is what an open-ended question in a weight loss um, counseling session looks like. And the computer learns to recognize those behaviors by looking at the pattern of the language. So we started with the patient language and we had some pretty good success training the model to recognize this behavior and then over the course of I have them all listed out here we have we have at least three you know papers that we first demonstrated that we could recognize commitment language and change talk we then improved upon that model by looking at different there's different types of models and then it's a little bit beyond even my Um, comprehension it's my computer science colleagues real domain of interest to understand the nuances of the different types of models and so we identified a model that performed really well and figured out how we can add features to it so things like oh dear I'm forgetting his name oh shoot I can't remember there's um a researcher that I'm not remembering the name of right now that has um, all of these dictionaries of cognitive states. So, if you have, uh, you know, if you have a depressed affect, these are some of the words that you might use. If you have an anxious affect, these are all of the words that you can use. Pennebaker, <laughs> I think I think that's it, but I'm not confident in my response right now. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so there's the, all these language or all these dictionaries of cognitive states, and we can, you know, give the computer algorithm that as an additional source of information. We can also give it um, information about, you know, these are adolescents or these are caregivers, so that it can start to differentiate the language of adolescents and caregivers. And there's uh, probably some other ones that I'm not remembering at the moment. So, essentially, we were able to refine the model, and then we were able to get it to also recognize the counselor behaviors. And so, at this point, we have been developing uh, these classification models, they're called, that can recognize patient behavior behavior. It can, and not only recognize, but it can um, correctly classify or code if we want to use the language of, you know, qualitative research, which is my language, um, classification is the computer science language. It can accurately classify, it can accurately segment, which is another term for parsing, so sort of dividing up a speaking turn into the different behaviors that are being demonstrated there and then it can tell us whether or not the pattern of the language that it's seeing is going to result in change talk or commitment language or sustained talk with a pretty high degree of accuracy and that's pretty exciting work because It takes my human coders, I always estimate, about five hours for every recorded hour of intervention to do the coding. And this is after they're trained and up to speed, right? The computer can do it in seconds. And so if you think about our ability to understand the nuances of what works with who, in what setting, in the the event that these models could work. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. And it also opens up the doors to other things that people may or may not be as excited about. Things like automated counseling
2: yeah and and it's interesting that you said because we have begun we did have a conversation in the past where the idea of speaking to an automated counselor who who'd been trained to recognize change talk or change client talk and to respond in, in MI consistent ways and that that was intriguing and what 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 I'm hearing here is is what the what the a i is doing is actually reading the process rather than listening and talking and the the fact that you know that you, you, you've given it the language to listen out for. It talked about a, a, a commitment talk, then an affect, and then recognizing the different sounds of adolescents and and caregivers, and then introducing this is what a practitioner sounds like as well. And what's clearly exciting about that for you is is that that you can give the all you need to do is transcribe the intervention, and then ask the computer what's going on here. And within seconds, it can go. This is what we think is happening here, 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 and that's 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 immediately offers feedback to the practitioner for them to recognize this is in, in, in the tech in technical terms, this is what you were doing here, and mm-hmm. that relates to the theory of what we're trying to explore. So if you practice doing that more, then it it what's likely is is that there's going to be more change talk, which ultimately leads on to more change. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it, it just opens up an avenue where it, 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 sh- it sounds like it shortcuts so much of what, uh, of what it is you're trying to help people understand and just go, this is what we're trying to help you understand. And you're doing it here. You're doing it here. You're doing it here over here. Maybe tweak it a bit. And potentially that's where mentoring and coaching can come in for the practitioner to say, tweak, tweak these bits. And then you can track the, the development of the practitioners over a period of, of interventions that the computer can, like you say, can code in moments. And that's that's fascinating. Another question that comes up for me is, because if we, if we go back just slightly, what was interesting was the fact that you're saying, you know, here we are trying to help these practitioners change the way they do things. And it's not always that easy to get practitioners to change the things that they know how to do. So it's almost like there's a loop or a, a circle here where, um, we're, we know a way of doing things and we want to try and help you change the way you do things so, so that you can help your clients change the way you do things. And there's, there's a block, not a block, there's, well, there's, there's a hurdle at both of those points where the individual, whether they be the practitioner or the client struggles to, to decide to change. And it sounds like it's the same thing. And, I'm just wondering given the fact that this research started way back going change talk is predict change talk is predictive of change and you you mm-hmm. you find, find you find it down to going, okay so what makes people use change talk and you've done that now I'm just wondering does your research then go on to go we we can get people to use this change talk by getting them to use open-ended questions, autonomy support and uh, does does the research then go on to show? that when we've done that, these kids actually change in the long term. We've got the practitioners getting the people to talk. And does it look back to the start, which is saying, and yes, it's still it, getting them to talk, use change talk means they still change. We're just helping them understand how do, the practitioners to get the clients to talk like this.
0: Um, So we we have we have not yet demonstrated or attempted to demonstrate that if i'm following the question correctly that a given sequence of communication is associated with let's say weight loss or changing your lifestyle i'll tell you i've been puzzling this on this for a while now and it it, the the dilemma is i think that Even though we know that in the moment, if a counselor uses a given communication strategy, if they use emphasizing autonomy, if they use open-ended questions, that's going to be more likely than another communication strategy to elicit change talk. And we know that from some of the work that Terry's done that the accumulation right so like the proportion of time that a counselor spends in a session doing those things is associated with the behavior change that you are targeting i have not been able to in my own work be able to make the link between the individual sequence i haven't looked at the accumulation like so we haven't really looked at is the proportion of time that the counselors spend using MI consistent communication associated with weight loss. We know that the intervention package that we delivered to the adolescents, which was a combination of motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy, was effective at eliciting weight loss. Like the kids mm. that participated in the intervention lost weight, mm. right? But we, have not been able to establish or that empirical link between, you know, if they are sequences of open-ended questions emerging or emphasizing autonomy and, um, you know, reflections that elicit change talk that lead to change talk, is that associated with weight loss? And it's been frustrating me, I'll tell you that, Mm. because it logically it should, right? Like that's the theoretical model. Like if, if you do these things, it will cause the patient to express the underlying reasons why they want to change. And the expression of the underlying reasons that they want to change is associated with the behavior change. It's associated with changing your lifestyle. It's associated with losing weight. And I think it's a sample size issue if you want the truth, because... And it's a sample size issue, perhaps, and then maybe there's all sorts of other factors, right? This is the dilemma of research, is that we really hone in on a specific question. What does a provider say that elicits change talk? And then it opens up the door to all these broader questions, but we haven't collected all the information that we need to answer that bigger question. So. you know, there, there could be other cognitive changes that might be happening uh, or not happening that is causing or not causing weight loss. And, and I think that becomes really complex. That's why human behavior is so difficult to mm-hmm. change, so many factors that contribute to it. And so at least my understanding and my thinking around MI is that we are sort of changing one component of the puzzle. And it's a really important component but it's not the end all be all. It's not like we can just get them to say, change, talk, all is going to be well and good, right? You guys know that from what you've, the work that you've done with patients. They they tell you things and then they go out in the world and they do different things. And yeah. that's, yeah.
1: Well, and you know, it, it, it makes me think too. I and mean, first of all, you know, you're the, the nuanced specificity at which you, operate April is is great I mean it's researchers have a way of just making sure they are they're saying the things that they feel confident that they can say and not saying things that they can't say because things that they haven't discovered or others haven't discovered and um, it sort of it makes me think of how often in healthcare and I'll use that term broadly practitioners, do things without any basis Hmm. of of support. And, and, And actually, you could even go so far as to say how often they are doing things with actually basis of negative support. Like, you know, I mean, most healthcare encounters are probably some version of the provider asks questions, finds out what the problem is and tells the person what to do to change it. That happens in most healthcare settings, fair to say, across the world, certainly in the U.S. and in Northern Ireland, I'm sure Glenn would agree. Well, is that working? Not working that well, clearly, if we have epidemics of all kinds of things, but it doesn't seem to stop people from continuing to say, no, what you have to do is you have to put the cigarette away because don't you know that it causes cancer? Uh, I'm pretty sure people know that smoking causes cancer that's not getting it done right and so so we so the practitioners left with decisions about how to interact what to recommend what to say what not to say and you know you, you you describe one piece of the puzzle and i think that's a great way of framing it there's so many pieces of the puzzle in totality with human behavior and then even within these 10 minute 15 minute 45 minute perhaps conversations, there's so many pieces of those puzzle, of that puzzle also. And, and so, you know, your work and Sylvie's work and Terry's work and all the the wonderful researchers that are out there trying to figure this out. It's just methodically discovering, Mm -hmm. aha, we've, we've got a puzzle piece right here. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's find the next puzzle piece. And, and, and meanwhile, people are going to be out there guided with the best information that we have available.
0: Incremental, that's what we call it in the research world. <laughs> yeah. Incremental, we kind of build a little bit on what has already been done and it broadens our understanding of skosh, but it also opens up the door to so many more questions.
2: Right. Yeah. And what comes out of that as well is just from what you're describing, that it's almost like the, the, the potential of AI is that it's taken the most effective parts of of human interventions. And using just that, and leaving the bits of that isn't working. It's almost like it's taken. It takes the needs of the human practitioner out of the equation, and just leaves this pure intervention. It's almost mm. like AI is has the opportunity to offer someone pure love, and, mm. and it's in that circumstance that this individual will feel held. The the pure Rogerian experience, which is held and understood. And in that moment, they can flourish for themselves in that contained place. And it's, it's, it sounds like what you part of what your work is doing is identifying how does that sound? How does a, how does a human being say that? And then teaching machines to say that. And mm-hmm. so that people can feel held and understood and uh, you know I, I guess it's both exciting as you describe it and scary about where that might lead but if it leads to people getting helped quicker more effectively then it, it it's certainly going to have a place
0: yeah yeah um well there's sort of two thoughts that i was thinking about as you were talking like one of them is um That's the logic of the grants that we write, (laughs) right? Like fidelity is high in the e-health world because we're programming the machine, if you will, to do what we want it to do and there's not that human factor that intervenes, which is, you know, human thinking and human reactions and emotions and that sort of thing. So that's that's the argument for e-health. But at the same time, you know, I think there's a time and there's a place for all of, of these factors. The way that I think about e-health, it, You know, AI and like where we're headed in that domain is in a continuum of care, right? So, one of the things that um, Sebastian and I talked about before the podcast airing was that, you know, if we can blast out to anybody who has a need, and right now in our world, need is high in a lot of different areas. And if Getting people to answer a couple of questions about why you want to change, how you might be able to change, and really kind of reinforcing for them, the ball's in your court. This is up to you. you got the power to do it. And that changes a fraction of the people or helps a fraction of the people. That frees up the human resources for the people who maybe can't respond to that sort of light low level of intervention. Right. And the, the need is just, I just keep coming back to this idea the need is so high right now in so many domains, whether it's COVID, whether it's like the, the racial relations, at least here in the U S uh, of things that are going on. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of need right now. And so helping people, if we can reach a larger number of people in help a fraction of those people, then that. Int- enables us to kind of have a bigger impact in the world. I also wanted to go back to a comment that we were talking about, or maybe that you made earlier, Glenn, because I don't want to um, misrepresent some of the work that I'm doing. So when you're talking about using the ai to give feedback to counselors and on their their adherence or their proficiency with motivational interviewing dave atkins out in seattle i think he's still out in seattle he's done a lot of work in that domain right now and he's actually developed exactly what you described where people can send their audio tapes and it will feedback of, you know, a report to them on, you know, this is where you can improve. I'm not sure because I'm not hundred percent up to speed with exactly where he's at. If it will say at this point is where you could have done something a little bit different, but it does give him, give the the counselor some feedback. And so he's really been working in this space as well, too, and, and has done a lot of really great work on, automating fidelity assessment. I believe he's using the Mighty, which is the Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Scale. And I believe right now he's really working on empathy, which we've been talking about technical skill, right? And the other piece of it is the relational piece, which is how you are in the room with the patient. And and part of that is empathy. And so he's done a lot of work in that domain. So I just want to make sure that... (laughs) So the work that we've been doing is really on understanding the process and then thinking about how can we apply this knowledge, this understanding to whether it's automated counselors, like that might be the framework of an automated counselor or e-health interventions, more um, hardwired, if you will. Uh, pre-programmed interventions you know click this and it'll take you there and thinking about how you know we can use the lessons learned from okay if this is an intervention for an african-american adolescent we're going to really build a lot of you know emphasizing autonomy or personal responsibility into this intervention um that's really been the space that we've been working in so
1: yeah wonderful uh you know, descriptions of, of the work that you've done previously and, and this work that's truly on the cutting edge of, uh, in several fields, I imagine, motivational interviewing and being a specific slice of that, but just the sort of the, the broader field of automated health interventions and how best to understand the process and also inform effective teaching uh, of, of these skills. So, wonderful to hear all this fascinating work April at this point in the podcast we typically will uh, pivot to uh, to ask our guest what else do you have going on in your in the not too distant future for yourself what's on the horizon for you it could be something that's motivational interviewing related maybe it has nothing to do with professional life and there's something else that's really uh, you know getting your, your energy and your attention lately
0: yeah thanks for asking that question um so, in the academic research space, we're always looking ahead. We're always looking ahead to the next grant, the next idea, the next you know big thing. And so, some of the stuff that I'm working on right now that is really exciting is venturing off into somewhat of a new domain for me. So, I've been working with a group out of Washington University, which is in St. Louis, Missouri, and doing um, work. To develop an e-health intervention uh, for childhood cancer survivors. So um, apparently, childhood cancer survivors can have a lot of negative sequelae, which one of which is having impact on their heart and their their damage to their heart during the treatments they underwent as a child. And this project is exciting to me because it is more of a prevention focused. So much of the work that I've done has been intervention with people who already have what we would consider to be an existing problem. And at my heart, I've always been really uh, focused and excited about preventing problems from happening or helping people prevent the development of problems. And so this um, intervention is really trying to encourage them to get echocardiograms so that they can figure out if they have damage to their heart from their childhood cancer treatment um, so that they can be proactive in seeking treatment around that. So I I really enjoyed working with um, this group. Um, It's being led by Erica Waters, um, who is at the the Washington University there. So that's kind of the big thing. There's, there's, There's always a million balls in the air. But that's the one I think I'm most excited about
2: right now. Mm. Yeah, and you, you're very clearly passionate about that and just the, the potential of what it is that, that, that you're creating for the people that you're endeavoring to support, which is in it, You know, there's, there's, there there might be something coming down the road here and we, yeah. can, we can help you find it in advance so that, that you can prepare for it. And, uh, you're using the skills and knowledge you have that you've used with problems that already exist and you're just mm-hmm. adapting it. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, we wish you every success in that. And perhaps you can let us know how that goes and, and what, what other questions spring out of it Because it's from what you're saying is every time you answer a question, you're, you, you've two new questions. You've every time you get an answer, you get two new questions. And that, and, mm-hmm. and that's what's driving you forward. Another thing that we, uh, we always ask our, our guests then. April is is that if people listening to this episode want to find out more or share some of what they're doing with you that aligns with what what you're offering, can can they get in contact with you? And if they if they can, how will they do that?
0: Absolutely, I welcome people's interest in the work or you know otherwise. So um, you can certainly email me at my work email, which is a carconi. So A-C-A-R-C-O-N-E at med.wayne.edu. So that's my university email. I'm also on Twitter, and I've been trying to be more active in the social media space. Uh, Although, boy, does that take a lot of time. And effort. you want to talk about qualitative coding, let's talk about social media engagement. But um, my Twitter handle is a underscore Carconi, and then I'm also on LinkedIn and ResearchGate is another one that is really a research domain. where Although I will admit, uh, I don't think that one is quite up to date as I maybe should. <laughs> it's, it's a lot.
1: <laughs> Great. So a, a few places for people to uh, to reach out to you if they're uh, so inclined. Well, this has been uh, really, really interesting to hear uh, the perspective of a researcher, first of all, because, again, most of our conversations are with, uh, uh, you know, primarily clinicians. And um, and just sort of imagining the direction of where things are going in, in, in certain spheres within MI work. Um, so uh, this has been really wonderful. So we appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to join us.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really Fun and exciting. In <laughs> my little research life here, I'm usually all by myself. So it's good, <laughs> especially in COVID days. It's good to see a couple of friendly faces. <laughs> Thanks. Well, for yeah,
2: thank, thank, thank you for coming and joining us. And uh, thank you for everybody listening. Thanks, everyone.